So, good morning, everybody. So let's start uh, with visualizing the mirror field, doing our chanting, trying to focus on the meaning of the words that we're saying, generating that kind of uh, feeling or attitude in our own mind. Yeah. And uh, remember that we're surrounded by all the living beings. You know, we may say, huh, I don't see them. Thank goodness, there's a little bit of space around me. But surrounding doesn't mean they have to be right next to you, you know. It's wherever we go in this planet, even though we think we're alone, we're still surrounded by living beings because we live on the same planet. Or we live in the same universe. Yeah. So we hear the, you know, that we need to be secluded, and we think secluded is physical seclusion and go away, don't talk to anybody, you know. And, and it's useful to keep silence, you know, when you're in retreat. But even when you're keeping silence, to remember, you're still surrounded by all sentient beings. They still exist, and you still depend on them, and they still depend on you. Yeah. And it's impossible to go anywhere where we're not uh, surrounded by sentient beings. Yeah. Anyway, do you really want to be with yourself all the time? You know, when you've done some practice, then, you know, you're fun to be around yourself. But if you haven't practiced, then you're just with this old crabby person who's complaining all the time. You know, it's like, shut up already. <laughs> no, this is all I know how to do. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of our uh, self-centeredness arises when it comes to uh, caring for the body, making sure the body has enough uh, pleasant feelings and gets rid of all the unpleasant feelings. But if we look in our world, yes, caring for our body is one uh, object of it. You know, our body's one object of attachment. Oh, feelings. Yeah. Because we always hear people say, my feelings were hurt. Yeah, somebody hurt my feelings. And uh, very often, you know, it's these hurt feelings that really get us very tied up. Somebody hurt my feelings. I don't want to be with them. I don't want to talk to them. They are an awful person. I'm never going to forgive them. 
on and on and on. But what are these feelings that get hurt? And just sit there for a minute. You know, think of a time your feelings were hurt. Maybe somebody said you were ugly or stupid or whatever it is. And what in these, what are these feelings that got hurt? Are they feelings that are floating around in the air and then somebody hit them so they're hurt? What is it that got hurt? Very difficult to locate feelings that are getting hurt. So what is really going on? What is really the step-by-step process in, in our mind that is actually going on when we say, my feelings are hurt? When we start to examine it more closely, the phrase that we often say so much, my feet, they hurt my feelings, yeah, begins uh, to not fit very well. Who's the they? And what are the feelings? And what does it mean to hurt feelings? And did they hurt my feelings? Or am I all set up for any small thing to be interpreted as an attack? So this kind of questioning makes it uh, apparent why self-centeredness is our enemy. Because self-centeredness, self-grasping, 
they're the two things that lie behind all of this. So all the tears that we've shed about uh, our feelings being hurt, it's, they're just more songs and dances by the self-centered mind that make us miserable. And so when we really understand this deeply, then the idea of relinquishing the self-centeredness and cherishing others becomes uh, much more desirable to do like that, much more realistic, much more beneficial. And so with that, let's open our heart to others. The doors to opening our heart may be a bit creaky, may take some pressure to open them, but not a harmful pressure, just uh, The feeling when you have when you have to get into a room and you, and uh, the door is stuck. So here we need to get out of the room of our own self-centeredness, and that door is stuck. So we need to nudge it. We need to see that. When the door to our heart opens, we can still feel safe and we'll probably feel even safer. And so with that kind of thought, let's generate bodhicitta. That isn't just compassion for others but it's uh, taking that step to do something about it. So have you ever asked yourself before what you really mean when you say my feelings are hurt? How many people say my feelings are hurt from time to time? <laughs> yeah? What's really going on? Are our feelings kind of sitting out there and then somebody's words go like that? 
you know, oh, my, my hurt feelings. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are these hurt feelings? Where are they? What are they? Yeah. When you, you pause, it's, it's like, huh? Yet it seems so real, doesn't it? Yeah. My feelings are hurt and they hurt my feelings. Yeah. They did it. Yeah. My innocent feelings. Yeah. They went, but what's going on? So when you, you start to scratch the surface, what does that phrase mean? My feelings got hurt. You know, what's really going on that makes me say that? Now, I don't know about you, but when I scratch the surface of that, what's really happening is I have expectations of how other people should treat me. I have an image of who I am in different social contexts and how the people around me in those social contexts should treat me. Yeah. And they're expected to know how to treat me. And they're expected to to not want it to hurt my feelings. Yeah. yeah. I mean, other people shouldn't go around hurting other people's feelings, should they? So, you know, these people, I have expectations how they should treat me. And, uh, you know, they should not hurt my feelings. And then, oh my God, what's happening? You know, it's like their words are like, you know, going like this. But who's, what's the punching bag? Who set up the punching bag of those feelings that are getting hurt? I did. I did. Because I know how other people should treat me. And they should know how they should treat me also. And they should treat me that way. Okay. And if they don't, I have two, you know, then if they don't, my feelings are hurt. How do I act when my feelings are hurt? Well, I usually have two alternatives. Okay. One is I sit and cry, you know, maybe literally cry, maybe just sit and feel sorry for myself. The other one, the other choice, is I get angry. And I let them know that they hurt my feelings and they should not do that. And maybe I try and hurt their feelings as an act of kindness so they'll know what it feels like when your feelings get hurt. Yeah. Okay. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Now, so stop when, whenever you feel like your feelings are hurt and look what is actually going on. Yeah. And when you do, it's like the whole thing 
um, evaporates. Huh? Do you think so? Or maybe not. Yeah, maybe you like having hurt feelings. Yeah, because when our feelings are hurt, then it really means we exist. Yeah? And our ultimate thing is we want to exist. So anything we have to do to exist, even if it's sitting there with hurt feelings and being miserable, it convinces us that our self-grasping and our self-centeredness are, are right. I'm there. So, yeah. So, try that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we, we find, you know, all those expectations of how other people should treat us, you know, that we... Uh, we never realized we had before <laughs> until all of a sudden our feelings are hurt. Yeah, they don't respect me. What in the world does that mean? Yeah, I want them to respect me. What? How do I know other people respect me? What are they supposed to do? Yeah. Well, they're supposed to grovel up on their stomach, make three prostrations, make an offering, tell me how wonderful I am, and then volunteer to do anything I want them to do. <laughs> yeah. That means they respect me. Think about it. Do you want to live in a world where people treat you like that? Yeah. I think, you know, I want to be a big shot. I want people to respect me. But then imagine everybody around you starts groveling and bowing to you and wanting to do things for you. Yeah. And all you want to do is take a walk and be quiet. But all these people respect you. What are you really wanting? Okay. So what, when you get bored and you don't know what to do, think about these things. <laughs> yeah? They're, they're good things to think about. What? do I really mean when I say certain things? And here, it's what I say to myself, too. You know, my feelings are hurt. I'm saying to myself, okay, what do I really mean? Okay. Um, then, another thing. Uh, because we're, we've been talking a lot and the future verses will get into how we relate to our body a lot and the equalizing, uh, self and others and exchanging self and others very much, you know, changing the identity. And a lot of that has to do with our body. Okay. And to lessen this, uh, uh this mind that says this body is mine. 
or it is me. Okay. It's interesting. We can't make up our mind what the body is in relationship to us. That when you think about it, it feels like, yeah, yeah, I know. But if I really know, how come I sometimes say, my leg ha- hurts, and other times I say, I hurt, when I'm referring to the same thing. But those are two different things. I hurt, and my leg hurts. Those are two different things, aren't they? So am I relating to my leg as if it's me? Or am I relating to my leg as if it's my possession? Another interesting one to think about. You know, you look at your robe and, you know, this is my robe. Okay, I don't say this is me. Although it's interesting, if somebody, it's it's holy time in India now, you know, when they throw colors on you. So if somebody threw the colors on me and it got all over my robe, I would say they threw the color at me. Yeah, and all of a sudden my robe becomes me. But usually my robe is not me. It's my robe. But they threw the colors. Actually, they threw the colors at my robe. No, they didn't. They threw it at me. Well, it didn't hit me, if me means my body. It hit my robe. Oh, my robe is me. So it did hit me. it's, It's interesting how we think of things, you know. And it just shows the confusion in our mind. But it, more than that, it shows uh, how things are designated, you know, and how we we solidify the things that we designated. Yeah, we forget that we're the ones who designate them, and then we solidify them. Mm-hmm. Okay, then another thing I wanted to clear up from last time, you know, about how those verses uh, are to be, um, how they're to be read. Because I usually read it, yeah. Okay, if we look at verse 95, when both myself and others are similar in that we wish to be happy, what is so special about me? Why do I strive for my happiness alone? So I think, actually, Shantideva is writing that, and we're to read it in the thing of, oh, yeah, what is so special about me? Absolutely nothing. So I, you know, so why do I strive for my own happiness? That's ridiculous. I need to stop that. But last week, when I went over this verse... I took the what is so special about me, why do I strive for my happiness alone? And instead of being the the, uh, good student who's listening to the words, I was the naughty child who said, I'll tell you what's so special about me, and I'll tell you why I strive for my own happiness alone. Okay, so Shandideva may not have been writing it, 
to be read that way. I'm supposed to read that and like, uh-oh, you know, re- see that my way of thinking is wrong. But so often when we hear good advice, we react with it, with refuting it and telling people why that's unreasonable and why we can't do it. So that's the role that I was playing in that verse. What's so special about me? Well, I'll tell you. Let me tell you what's so special about me. First of all, I'm me, you know, and that alone is special. And you should be very happy I am here in your universe, you know, because I am so kind and I am so generous and blah, 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 blah. So that is what is special for me and why other people should, uh, you know, pay homage. <laughs> Not just respect me. Pay, they should pay homage to me. You know, you, you, you juice it up a little bit, okay? Because sometimes, I mean, that's the way our self-centeredness acts, isn't it? It's like this little kid. Yeah. Remember when you got disciplined and, and you know, one of your parents would say, you know, why in the world did you do that? And you want to tell them. But you know, if you value your life, you better not. <laughs> but here... They're not there. So you could tell them why you did that. Now what you did was wrong and blah. I mean, how you did what was right and it was really good. No, 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 no. Okay. So I think it's sometimes helpful to see how our self-centeredness wants to refute the wisdom teachings that we're receiving. Yeah. So I, I think... It's sometimes it's good to read things in different ways, yeah, yeah. Because I know the when I first started studying this text years ago, I would read something like that, and it's like, oh yeah, what is so special about me? Gee, never nobody. Why should I strive for my happiness alone? Nobody ever asked me that question before. Yeah. Did anybody ever ask you that question? What's so special, you know, what's so special about me? Why do I strive for my own happiness? I never thought about that before. Why? You know, why? Because I'm me. And everybody does that for their own eye. So I do. And also, what is that? If I don't take, stick up for my, how does that, that slogan go? If I don't care, Take care of myself. Who will? There's some, a couple of other lines in there too. I can't remember. Does anybody remember that? But you know, if you think about, oh, well, yeah, if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. And that's the big catastrophe in the world if nobody else takes care of me. Yeah. And if no, you know, and if I don't take care of myself, then oh my God, you know, because that, that's what. The whole purpose of my, of being alive every day. I mean, what do we think about when we wake up in the morning? How to take care of ourselves and feed ourselves and make ourselves happy. And it takes so much effort, doesn't it? It takes a lot of effort to take care of this body. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort to take care of our feelings. 
Yeah. I mean, think about it. Everything you do every day to take care of this body. Yeah. You have to get it out of bed in the morning. So you all, we all have our little rituals in the morning, don't we? You know, that we do every single morning. And most of them are about the body. Aren't they? Yeah. You get up. You know, maybe you remember to do your three prostrations when you first get up. That's about the body, but it's also stretching the mind a little bit. Yeah. But then everything else is about the body. Yeah, you got to pee. You got to, you know, it's cold in the room when you get up. So you need to heat the room up. Then you need to drink something. Then you need to eat something. Then you need to get this body from here to the meditation hall, and it's icy, so I need to put cleats on my shoes, and I need, you know, I, I need, like, um, what is it you got me, the, the trail? Walking sticks, walking sticks. You know, I need to protect this body so that I don't slip, you know, and then you know, get yourself in the meditation hall. And again, with the body, my body is tracking in snow. Other people won't like it. They'll say something that hurts my feelings. <laughs> so I better take my shoes off and take get the snow off so that they don't say that. My feelings don't get hurt. And I mean, all day long, it's, if you think, what would it be like to just not be so attached to this body and whether it feels happy or not happy and what would it feel like to not be so attached to my feelings, you know? So people could say anything to me. Just imagine, what would that feel like? People could say absolutely anything to you and you're going to be okay with it. Yeah? So I, I, I know people online, they're shaking a little bit here because now, you know, the big thing is watch what you say to other people. Yeah. There's a whole movement to what to get rid of certain words and certain phrases. Yeah. I, I heard that that Stanford University was, uh, there was a group of people that decided, you know, to kind of make a dictionary of words that should no longer be used because they're racist. Yeah. Huh? Or racist or, but, or, well, they come to the same thing. Are you sensitive about race? Because it sounds pejorative. Anyway, you know, so, so get rid of those words. So <laughs> then somebody was saying, the word field was one of those words because field implies slavery. Yeah. So if you don't want to insult anybody, yeah, um, then you say that uh, the Chicago Cubs are playing in Wrigley Meadow. <laughs> you can't say Wrigley Field. Because field connotes slavery. You know, the word watermelon, 
you know. I didn't know that watermelon was a, a, a word that, you know, set people off. But it does. It becomes a racist word because watermelon goes to the stereotype of slaves who sat in the field eating watermelon instead of working and the juice going all over. So there's all these words that, you know, we don't realize for that other groups are sensitive about. Okay? But you're expected to know those. And we expect other people to know the words that we're sensitive about and not say them. Okay? And, you know, when you think about that, it, it's so, it's so, it takes so much energy to monitor whatever other people say to see if they're putting me down or if it's racist or prejudiced in some way or another. It really takes a lot of energy because I'm not hearing the meaning of what they're saying. I'm reacting to the sounds and assuming that there's racism or condescension or something else I don't like behind it. But even if there is racism or condescension or whatever, why do I need to react to that? Now, I know this is pushing a lot of people's buttons. I acknowledge that. But think about it, you know? And this is... You know, I've already told you the thing, how in seventh grade, Peter Armetta, you know, when we were talking about current events and Israel came up and he said, you know, why don't you go back to where you came from? And I ran out of my seventh grade Mr. Reese's classroom and spent the rest of the day crying in the bathroom because my feelings were hurt. Yeah, I was being, uh, yeah, yeah, I, there was prejudice aimed at me and my feelings were hurt. And what I realized, I really have to thank Peter Armetta for doing that. I made this vow at that time in seventh grade, never to speak to him again. And I've kept that vow, you know, much better than I've kept my other vows. <laughs> yeah, I really want to find him someday and apologize. But, you know, and we were in the same classes. This was seventh grade. All through high school, we even went to a special program at USC together. All that years, I never spoke to him because he, you know, he's, he's racist. He's anti-Semitic, you know, and it was taken out on me. Okay, so I spent a few years, you know, in that mindset, yeah. And then I said, you know, because once you get in that mindset, you start seeing it everywhere. Yeah. And then my parents started telling me stories and this and that. And, oh, yeah, my dad would get beat up when he was a kid. The, the Polish Catholic kids would beat up the Jewish kids. And one time they applied to join a country club and they got refused because they were Jewish. And then, you know, my brother, 
whose doctor someone the patient said oh, i would much rather have a christian doctor i don't want you to take care of me you know and so once you start doing that then you see it everywhere okay and so somewhere in high school i don't know where but i decided i do not want to have a, an i a, a an identity of persecution i do not want to filter everything that happens in my life through the eyes of persecution you know and let me tell you the the jews really have it on persecution you know nobody else has it i mean 4000 years come on it was like started with the pharaoh yeah yeah oh we're coming up to passover we get to watch saturday saturday night seder oh good <laughs> yeah so everybody needs to come because you'll see in that you know yeah those of you who have seen you see the anti-semitism cuz Jews make fun of themselves yeah but they also know very well what happens and it's woven i, I mean that that whole holiday most actually every jewish holiday is they tried to kill us we won let's eat you know but it's they tried that they tried to kill us and you live your life through that and i decided somewhere in high school yeah i am not going to live my life like that yeah okay so that's a, a, a big example you know of okay how a minority somebody in a minority might feel but even if you're in a majority culture okay yeah even you go to israel and there's jews all around and you're wondering if the cats and dogs are also jewish because where you grew up there were no other jews you know all the cats and dogs, everybody here is jewish oh my god you know um yeah it's really weird the cats yeah are you jewish now <laughs> yeah. yeah give me matzo ball soup i'll eat it um yeah but you begin to 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 see like how you construct things in your mind of us and them and you know you set up the whole stage for getting hurt yeah and it becomes part of your culture part of who you are yeah I mean the people who are anti-semitic I'm going to get them I'll give them a clue if you really want to get rid of the Jews you can't stand them the best way to do that is let them assimilate because the moment with any group you persecute them they come together and they hold on to their identity even stronger Okay. Remember after 9/11? Yeah. So many of the things where Americans didn't get along, everybody forgot about them. Shoop. We're Americans, you know, the Congress was said, you know, what did they do? They sang one of those songs that we learned in grammar school. I don't know my country tis of the year. 
or America the Beautiful, which was written by somebody who was Jewish, but half of, most of them don't know that. <laughs> and I should tell you, at every, everything else that Jews wrote, you know, all these songs and, you know, that people love, oh, they don't give any credit. Okay, so you just watch how you can so easily, and this is all conception in the mind. It's all conception. Yeah. So this makes learning low rig really helpful. Yeah. Because low rig, you know, did we ever think about the difference between direct perception and conception? Did we ever think that so much of our suffering comes from the conceptual mind? No, we were taught in school to develop our conceptual ability. And there is a very good use for our conceptual ability. If you're going to realize emptiness, you need that. Okay, you don't just say emptiness and like go blank-minded. You have to refute the object of negation, and that's a conceptual mind. Okay, but we usually use our conceptual mind just to create, you know, more and more suffering for ourselves. Yeah, and then we confuse, you know, what is reality with what we think it is. And this happens at all sorts of levels. Okay, so, yeah. So, you know, if it sounds like I'm off on some wing of something, you know, oh, there she goes again, but... <laughs> But actually, this is all relating to the self-centered thought. Because what is the self-centered thought all about? Yeah. And what is the attachment to self all about? And what is grasping a true existence all about? You know, it's all about misconceiving things and thinking that Conception is reality. Yeah. Okay. Then, finally, halfway through the talk, I'm getting through a question. I'm getting to a question of somebody that somebody asked. So, this is the question in short. This is the question in long. <laughs> Developing the heart of bodhicitta out of the two aspirations in order to re uh, relieve the suffering of others and to attain Buddhahood. How can we keep aspiration number one, you know, relieving the suffering of others, foremost in our mind and not let self-centeredness make our quote-quote bodhicitta really just about me? Okay. So, uh, so then they, they said, uh, you know, thinking more about Shantideva does not, uh, about why Shantideva does not refer to the kindness of sentient beings. I think it has something to do with getting I, the I out of the picture to do away with self-references. Like people are kind to me. 
Okay. And so they're saying, oh, yeah, especially if you say people were my mother, that's referencing me. Even if I say in the equalizing, exchanging self and others, it's still referencing me. They, they were kind to me because they built the road or whatever. Okay. So this person thinks we should get me just out of the picture totally. Okay. I don't agree. Okay. First of all, um, is the first, there's two aspirations. Brent Bodhicitta is a primary mind with two aspirations. Okay. Is one aspiration more important than the other? Yeah. If, if we want to get the I out of the picture and not, and have some way of thinking of sentient beings as kind, Without referencing I, you know, it seems to me that this person thinks that that's the foremost um, aspiration, that the other aspiration to attain Buddhahood isn't as important for Bodhicitta. Actually, I don't agree with that. Um, I don't think Shantideva would either. And I don't think Chandrakirti or Nagarjuna or Bodhavalita or, see, they're all the people who are right or on my side, yeah? So, um, because, yeah, even people who are not, who don't follow the bodhisattva path have compassion for other people. So we can't say that the compassion aspect of bodhicitta is the most important because other, you, you can have compassion for others without being a bodhisattva, without even being a Buddhist. But, you know, the Shravakas and solitary realizers have compassion for others. And it's important to remember, compassion is not the same as bodhicitta. Having compassion does not mean you're a bodhisattva. Okay, lots of people have compassion, thank goodness. Yeah, and we should encourage that. But just being a kind person, you know, we tend to say when somebody's nice to me, oh, you saved some extra broccoli for me. Thank you so much. You must be a bodhisattva. Um, you know, that's not the proper use of the word bodhisattva. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> in the monasteries, they would go around giving out broccoli. <laughs> yeah. And everybody would be bodhisattvas. Okay. So, it is important, you know, that to cherish other, you know, to think about the feelings of others. My philosophy is, if it works as a good strategy to help you think about the kindness of others, I'm not going to knock it. Okay? So, according to Atisha and company, thinking that uh, all sentient beings have been our mother and have been kind to us as our mother. Even that self-referencing, it works to open our heart to for the first step. It doesn't get us all the way to bodhicitta, but it opens our heart on the first step of seeing that there's other people who have feelings and other people and that we are dependent on the kindness of other people. It opens our, our eyes to that. 
which so often our eyes are closed to that. Yeah, people do things for us. This is, they're just fulfilling what they're expected to do. Remember all the things that they have to do so that my feelings don't get hurt? Well, they're just doing all those things. Yeah, so so that's fine. There's nothing glorious about that. Yeah. So, yeah, because everybody should serve me. Then when we flip it, I should serve everybody else. You know, it's like, huh? Yeah. But we don't even recognize the help we receive from others. Yeah. When we sit down to eat lunch, you know, our first thing, you know, is thinking about the causes and conditions and the kindness of others. I actually added that phrase. It isn't in the original Chinese. But the kind, think of the kindness of others by which we have this food. How, do we really think about that? Yeah. But when we go for lunch, do we think about, oh, some people spent all morning chopping vegetables and, you know, cooking those noodles that <laughs> yeah, cooking those noodles, <laughs> cooking concrete. <laughs> um, uh, you know, to, to think that other people go out of their way to do things, and I benefit it. You know. Yeah. So very often, the self-referencing is what gets us to open our eyes to see, yeah, okay, the noodles may not be the way I like them, but somebody spent their precious human life cooking those noodles, you know, for my benefit. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, somebody else put their life energy towards that. So, you know, so I don't think the self-referencing should be totally abandoned because it's what gets, it can get us going. So that, you know, was Atisha's way of doing it. Yeah, Shantideva's way is just seeing by whatever people do in society, we're reaping benefit. That's self-referencing, but it works, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not that that self-referencing increases our self-centeredness. It opens our eyes to the kindness of others. Okay, so I don't think we need to get rid of it. Unless you say, you know, oh, well, you know, they cook those noodles for me and nobody else but me. So I'm going to eat all of them and because I'm special. Go to verse 95. I told you why I was special already. Yeah. Okay. No, if we did that, yes, that would be too much. But just recognizing the interdependence is actually quite good, isn't it? Okay. Now, who has the hurt feeling? Who cooked the noodles yesterday? 
Okay. Are your feelings hurt? I thought so. Now, now look, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Somebody is commenting on the noodles. They, they are not saying a word about us. They're commenting on the noodles and our feelings are hurt. All of a sudden, you know, the I has expanded into the pot of noodles. You know, I'm the I is sitting in the pot of noodles. So if so if somebody says these noodles weren't cooked enough, oh that means I'm undercooked too. <laughs> you know? So the so we look at how interesting it is. The noodles aren't cooked enough, okay, goes to the noodles are bad. That's the first step. Okay, does not being cooked enough, is that equal to bad? If you took out the dictionary and looked up uncooked, is the definition bad? No. Okay, so that was the first mistake. Then... <laughs> Yeah, this is the mistake in our thinking. Yeah, under uncooked means bad. Then, you know, who didn't cook them enough? I. Well, if undercooked means bad, then I'm also bad. Because I'm the one who didn't cook them enough. Okay. I'm the one who never cooked them and didn't cook them enough. Every time I make, so, so first it's about, I'm, I'm bad because the noodles, yeah. Then it's, you know, every time I cook lunch, somebody complains about something. <laughs> so I, so now it's not just I'm bad, but I am really bad. Because every time I cook, somebody doesn't like what I cooked. Okay. So, and then it goes from there to, you know, I am bad through and through. You know, I am no good at anything. I am bad and everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. Think I'll eat some worms. You know, we go directly to that. And it just started out with the noodles are undercooked. Yeah. But from that, we go, you know, <laughs> you know, and then it doesn't just stop with that meal. It's like every time you need to cook, it's like, I don't want to cook. Yeah. I don't want to cook. I didn't sign up. I don't care if you didn't sign up. You got to cook. No, I no. Nobody likes my cooking anyway. I'm not going to sign up. You know. I am not going to sign up because if I cook, it means I'm bad, and those people, and uh, you know, if they think I'm bad, I must be bad. 
Yeah, because what everybody else thinks about me is right. So if they think I'm bad, I am bad. Right? Yeah, isn't that true? Yeah, very true. Very true. And if I'm bad, that won't do. It's too small. <laughs> I need this one. Because yeah. if I'm bad, I'm going to cry. Okay. Now, how much of your precious human life do you spend supporting the Kleenex industry by crying? You know, you become one of the the chief people that keep what? Yeah, you should buy. Yeah, you should buy um, shares in the Kleenex company because you support them. Yeah, and we're off and running, aren't we? So you know, my feelings got hurt today. So that means I'm going to be in a bad mood for the next week. Yeah. So you better tiptoe, get your eggshells out because there are, you know, actually you don't need to get your eggshells out. I have mine all over the place and you got to tiptoe all around my eggshells. Okay. So that you don't hurt my feelings anymore. Okay. Uh, maybe we should get back to this. <laughs> No, but but I think the the thing is, if self-referencing, you know, whatever we do to to loosen this incredible hold that we have on I'm the only one who exists almost, or other people exist to serve me, anything you know that will loosen that is is helpful, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so there, if you have, if you want to, then instead of seeing the whole world telling you you're bad, you begin to see people's kindness. Yeah. And everywhere you look, you see kindness. Yeah. And, um, okay, we're approaching spring. We are approaching the time. You can hear it in the air. When the turkeys are trying to figure out who's going to the prom with who, you know, because they got a couple up, you know, prom is coming, so you better ask your date. And so they're going to start pecking on the windows and everything like that that comes in the spring. Okay. So we know after deciding, you know, who goes to who with the prom, then what happens later? Little chicks. Okay. So, you know, all the turkeys must be from Florida where they don't allow both birth control. So, you know. <laughs> so, we have all the little chicks. Watch how Mama um, Turkey takes care of her babies. Yeah? Just watch. And the kindness, you know, that Mama Turkey takes, has for her babies. And sometimes for other people's babies. You know, if one, one Mama uh, Turkey gets hurt or, 
you know, she's just overwhelmed by little chicks. The, uh, you know, they team together and they help each other. Yeah, nobody taught them to do that. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Just kind of automatically reaching out and helping others. When I taught at Cloud Mountain, it's a retreat center on the other side of the state, uh, some of you will remember that they had uh, ha- um, peacocks, okay? There was one year where the peahen sat on those eggs and they didn't hatch and she kept sitting on them. Yeah, she kept sitting on them. She saw, they, I don't know, the eggs were defective in some way. Yeah. So they never hatched, but she kept sitting on them. Yeah. Another peahen, you know, had her little baby, what do they call them? Pea chicks? You know? <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> so, yes, chickpeas. Okay. So, you know, and how they teach their little chicks everything. Yeah. Where to go to peck, how to peck. Yeah. They don't teach them sharing so much. Yeah. And neither do mama turkeys. Yeah. But they teach them how to look out for themselves. And, you know, when the, the people wearing maroon are safe and when the people, other people who aren't around are not safe. Yeah. Because after a while, the turkeys, I mean, they act different around us. They act different around us because they see that we're so compassionate. <laughs> Oh, we give them our breadcrumbs every day after lunch. Aren't we wonderful? Okay. But just to, to see, uh, you know, if you start looking, the, the kindness of others. Yeah. In the winter, you know, I, I looked out sometimes and I would see the, da- the deer down in the valley. Yeah. And they're waiting for Geshe to come out with some of the cracked corn, you know, and they will hang out there for a long time. They know even which direction he comes from. (laughs) They look in that direction. They don't look at the other directions. They're focused there. When is he going to come? Oh, and Geshe-la comes with the cracked chick, uh, cracked, cracked, cracked corn. The alfalfa. Okay. You know, the deer are so happy. That's right. It's the turkeys that eat the crack. Deer, the, the alfalfa. Okay. Well, I almost got it. You know, <laughs> there were two choices and I got the wrong one. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, but then Geshe-la is kind. Then they act different around Geshe-la. Yeah. And we notice that, that the deer, that hang around all summer, you know, they aren't afraid of us. Yeah. Because they can, you know, we give them stuff and, and we look kindly and they love when we sing mantra toward them. 
you know, to them. They don't turn around and say, you're off key. <laughs> they say, oh, this is really nice. Yeah. yeah. You want to practice your chanting? Go in the forest <laughs> and chant to the turkeys and the deer. But, you know, um, yeah, they see kindness. So to train our own mind to see kindness. Yeah. And, you know, to see when people are kind towards us, to see when people are kind, you know, or turkeys are kind to others. It kind of all boils down. And what we're doing is we're train, we're re-familiarizing our mind with the sense data that we choose to pay attention to. You'll notice through this whole section, Shantideva talks about familiarization again and again and again as being the way to, you know, develop the, the thought of others' kindness, the way to develop bodhicitta. Okay. So, yeah, we familiarize ourselves with instead of, you know, looking at how other, uh, holding in prime in our hand, in our mind who I am and how other people should treat me, holding prime in our mind of looking how all living beings are depending on each other. Yeah? And how we support each other and we help each other. I mean, that that building is is good proof of it, isn't it? Yeah? But do we look at the building and say, that is an, an embodiment of the kindness of others, which it is. Or do we look at the building and say, you know, by this time they're supposed to be half done and they aren't half done and we're way behind schedule and this building, there, you know, there's no way it's going to be done. And, and have an opening until 2024. It's just impossible this year. So there's different ways you can look at the building. Yeah. And sometimes you need to look at the building in more than one way. Yeah. But if you include the, the way of, you know, we're dependent on other people building that, then, you know, you have some element of, uh, of recognizing others' kindness together with, you know, well, they should work a bit faster. <laughs> yes, I know it's snowing, but still they should work faster. <laughs> yes, I know the wind is blowing when it's snowing, but if they work faster, they won't be so cold. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe we should go back to the text. I mean, I, I have been talking about the text, yeah? Okay. So are are you okay? Yeah. Okay. So we stopped at 101. Yeah. We'll do it again. Since th such things as a continuum and an aggregation are false in the same way as prayer beads and an army. There is no real owner of suffering. Therefore, who has control over it? Okay. So, 
prayer beats. You have a mala. Okay. We look at it as one thing. Actually, the mala is a whole collection of beads, isn't it? You know, an army is a whole collection of people. So what really is the mala if when you look there, all that's really there is a pile of beads? Yeah. You know, when, you're, when your mala breaks and your beads go all over the place, and you're wondering, how am I going to collect all of them? <laughs> because they look just like everything else on the ground. Um, you know, it's, it's a collection. And a collection is not the, the you know, is, is not the object. You know, the designated object is not the basis of designation. Okay. Because you don't take out each bead and flick it in your fingers like this. They have to be, you know, if the collection is widespread and they're all over the floor, you still have a collection of beads, but you don't have a mala. Okay? So what they're getting at is, you know, his conclusion is there's no real owner of suffering. Okay. Why? When you look at what we call I, there's four, five aggregates. Okay. And when you look through and it's just a pile of aggregates. Yeah. Then there's no real person there. And so then who owns the suffering? Who owns, whose suffering is it? Who's the owner, the possessor of the suffering? Who's the possessor of the happiness? Because there's just a pile of aggregates. Okay. Yes, the aggregates are arranged in a certain fashion. Yeah. And they're linked together temporarily. But still, the pile of aggregates is, is not the person who owns the happiness and suffering. You can't point. Yeah. Similar with an army. Yeah. An army is just a group of individuals. Similar with a monastery. Well, again, is the monastery the building? Or is the monastery the people in the building? Which is it? Interesting question. Yeah. People say, I'm going to the monastery. Oh, monastery must be the building. Is it a specific place? They're going to that place. Yeah. Or, you know, you, uh, you need some encouragement in your practice. So you say, I'm going to the monastery. Then the monastery is the people because you're going to get encouragement from the people, not from the building. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so there's no real owner of the suffering. If there's no owner, who has control over it? That's the thing. We feel like we should, you know, when I said everything we do all day is to, to protect the body, there's in there, 
there's the thought that I should be able to control everything that happens to my body. Okay. So I should be able to control not only who hurts my feelings, but I should be able to control my feelings. No. My feelings are not hurt. They are not hurt. They are not hurt. <laughs> really? You didn't hurt my feelings. It's completely okay. You know, you feel like you should be able to control it. Yeah. Is there a controller of your feelings? If there is, they do a very poor job of it. <laughs> Okay, 102, there, there being no inherent owner of suffering. Yeah, just sit with that. There's suffering, and there's nobody who owns that suffering. Yeah, imagine that. There's suffering. But there's, it's nobody's suffering. It gives you a whole different feeling about what's going on in society, doesn't it? There's suffering, but there's nobody who owns it. So then the question comes, why do, you know, <laughs> Why do I make such a big deal out of my suffering? But we usually say, why do other people make such a big deal about their suffering? <laughs> yeah, there's no owner to your suffering. Why are you acting like this? Just get over it. Nobody hurt your feelings. Or you go back to what your mother used to say. You're crying? Wait, I'll give you something to really cry about. Didn't your mother say that? Yeah, some, some of you, yeah. Your mother didn't say that? Oh. If I was crying, it's like, oh, wait, I'll give you something to really, if you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, okay, okay, I'll, I'll be good. Good. <laughs> but why don't you ever listen to me? No, I'll be good. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, these things, these phrases that pass. From, how many of you had heard that when you were a kid? Yeah. So it passes from one generation to the other. Yeah. So here you become very glad you didn't have kids because you would be <laughs> inflicting that suffering on them, saying that to them. Okay, 102, there being no inherent owner of suffering, there can be no distinction at all between that of myself and others. If nobody owns suffering, then I can't distinguish between my suffering and their suffering. Woo! Yeah? Has that thought ever entered your mind? No. What happens if you don't distinguish my suffering from their suffering? Yeah. Then self-centered mind says, 
what's coming up in the, in the future verses. So we'll save it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, here, let's listen to what, what Shanti Deva said. Yeah, we'll read it uh, the way, that way. Okay. There can be no distinction at all between that of myself and others. Thus, I shall dispel it because it hurts. It doesn't say, I shall dispel it because it's mine. Or dispel it because it hurts me. It's just, I shall dispel it because it hurts. Why am I so certain that I shouldn't eliminate the suffering of others? Why? Why am I so certain? And we never question. Yeah. Why am, we, am I so certain that I shouldn't eliminate the suffering of others? It doesn't belong to anybody. So why not do something? Yeah. Well, why not? Verse 103, self-centered mind will tell you why not. But since neither the suffering nor the sufferer truly exist, why should I turn away the misery of all? Yeah, their suffering doesn't exist. There's no inherently existent person. So why should I bother with your suffering? Because none of that exists. Okay, you go over to nihilism. Okay. And, and you can see sometimes that it's easy. You know, this is, I think, why they say that, I mean, it really takes a long time when you generate bodhicitta to make your bodhicitta stable. Yeah, because just getting, you know, the path of accumulation has three parts. Just getting the, fir the first part, you know, is when uh, the small, called the small part of the path of accumulation. That's when you generate bodhicitta uh, sincere bodhicitta, not, not contrived bodhicitta, but actual bodhicitta. But you can still lose that bodhicitta. Why? Because we have to keep familiarizing ourselves with that outlook. Because otherwise, we go back to, well, neither, you know, oh yes, I'm, I'm a bodhisattva, I'm now meditating on emptiness, so they don't exist and their suffering doesn't exist, so why should I bother with it? Yeah? This is the crazy logic of the self-centered mind. Yeah. Doesn't exist? Oh, I'm not going to bother with it. Okay. But Sandy Devis says, why am I so certain that I shouldn't eliminate the suffering of others? Let, 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 yeah, let, let's skip that question. 103, then the self-centered mind, you know. But, but since neither the suffering nor the suffering truly exists, why should I turn away the misery of all? There is no ground for argument. Shanti Deva says, for if I present, prevent my own suffering, surely I should prevent the suffering of all. If not, since I am just like other sentient beings, 
I should not pre prevent my own suffering either. Okay, so if I'm not going to, you know, say, if I'm going to go to the extreme and say, well, I, I don't experience other suffering. Why should I care about it? I don't have to remove it. Yeah. But then the question comes back, then why should I try and do away with my own my own suffering? Because it too doesn't exist and I don't exist. But actually, we don't really believe that. My suffering, we should do away with. Others' suffering, they should handle. Okay. So, um, yeah. So if not, I am just like, if I don't work to eliminate others' suffering, yeah, but I am just like other sentient beings, so if I don't eliminate their suffering, I shouldn't eliminate my own either. Okay. So there you're going with the part of the argument that says, uh, you know, there, there's no... Well, yeah, I think that's good enough. Since I am just like other sentient beings, I should, you know, I don't care about their suffering, so then I shouldn't care about mine either. No, that's not true. Okay. Then self-centered mind try, tries another argument. Okay, so here yeah, we're really getting into how self-centered mind fights back. And it says, since this compassion will bring me misery, why should I exert myself to develop it? Yeah. When I develop compassion, I become miserable. All I do is think about the suffering in the world. And I fall into despair, and I'm miserable, and I'm depressed. So, you know, I shouldn't think about the suffering in the world. Because it makes me miserable. Yeah, I have compassion fatigue. I have compassion burnout. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if contemplating the experience of others is like that, why should I do it? just makes me, yeah, just makes me use more tissue, that's all. Okay. But Shanti never replies, should I contemplate the suffering of li living creatures? How could the misery of compassion be more? So the first two lines are saying, you know, if I contemplate others, Misery, I have compassion, and my compassion is the source of my suffering. Now you blame it on the compassion. Okay. But then, should I contemplate the suffering of living beings? How could the misery of compassion hurt more, hurt me more, than the suffering of living beings hurt them? Yeah. Are you, is that making some sense to you? Okay. So my thinking, my developing compassion, yeah, is the the unpleasant feeling I have from developing compassion is nothing compared to the un, the miserable suffering feelings others have in the world. Okay. 
Now, there's also something to be said here. Does compassion mean that you have to feel depressed and overwhelmed afterwards? Yeah, because we assume that. No. Aunt Ethel is in the hospital. She's hooked up to four dozen machines. She looks awful. I don't want to see her because it hurts me to see Aunt Ethel like that. Okay. So why should I care about Aunt Ethel? It just makes me unhappy. Yeah. And Sandy never said, well, then don't care about yourself either. But my question is, why does seeing Aunt Ethel like that make you unhappy? Yeah. Why? Why, when some people see blood, they they just freak out. Why? Yeah. Or why, when you think about, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, do you feel upset? Or why, when you think about, you know, various racism and prejudice and oppression throughout the world, do we, you know, do we always have to, what does it really mean to be compassionate? Yeah. Does it mean we suffer? Is that the indication of having actualized compassion is that we suffer? And we suffer so much that we become totally self-involved and we cannot do anything else for anybody else because we're depressed, we've fallen into despair, the world is hopeless, I'm just one person, I can't do anything about it. And the problem is my compassion. So I have compassion fatigue, you know, compassion burnout, so other I can't be around other people's compassion because it causes me I mean, I can't be around other people's suffering because it causes me compassion and my compassion hurts me. So, yeah, so I'm just going to stay home and read Reader's Digest, you know? Stay home and watch. I don't even know what's on TV anymore, you know? I'm just going to stay home and watch Tucker. And, and, and Tucker doesn't make you suffer? <laughs> Watching him makes me suffer. Really, when I look, you know, what creates suffering feelings in me? It's, you know, when I hear that, when I hear people talk about other people like that. Yeah. But, my point is not what they're doing is causing me suffering. The point is, why do I suffer when exposed to that? Isn't, you know, is there a way in which my 
self-grasping and my uh, self-centeredness are involved that makes me suffer when I see other people suffering. I was at a conference once where I gave a talk about um, uh, about compassion, and uh, Joan Halifax was also at the same conference. And she, we talked afterwards, and she said, you know, because I use the expression, you know, compassion fatigue. And she said, you know, if somebody has compassion fatigue, I don't think they actually had compassion. And I was like, oh, that's a new one. I haven't thought about that one before. And I thought about it. And yeah, what is compassion fatigue? What what assumptions lie behind compassion fatigue? Yeah. Number one assumption, well, besides it, it the world should not be like that. Okay. Says that spoke Zarathustra. You know, that was some movie. Who that was some movie, I can't remember. But you know, um, yeah. I spoke, there should so there should not be any suffering. Why does, why do I have compassion fatigue? Because I want to stop all this suffering and I can't do it. Yeah, I should be able to stop all the suffering in the world. By my disliking it, that and my, you know, having some feeling for others, suffering, that should give me the power to dispel the suffering. I should be able to do something and fix it. Okay. So it's, it's you know, again, I should be able to control everything. Yeah, I'm so important. There's a joke. Maybe your your brother knows that he's a doctor. What's the difference between and my brother? Uh, what's the difference between God and a doctor? Okay, God knows he's not a doctor. <laughs> okay, but we have that, you know. I should be like God and be able to fix it. And it's just overwhelming. I can't do that. So I, it's, so I won't do anything. I can't do anything because I'm totally immobilized. Okay. So when she said, you don't really have compassion if you fall like into that kind of depression and despair, it really made me think, you know, because if compassion is focused on the other, Compassion is not focused on me. If my compassion all of a sudden becomes focused on me, such that I'm suffering, then it's personal distress. It's not compassion. So that is not a reason to criticize myself and tell myself I'm wrong and bad and all of that, you know, 
that drama, okay? We don't go there, but we just realize, oh, yeah, I can't control something, you know? Even all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, who have more compassion than I do, certainly, they can't control it. But maybe there's some small thing I can do in the situation that would just do something nice for the other person that would bring maybe three seconds of their knowing that other people care about them. Maybe I can do that. I can't fix the whole problem, but I can do one small thing. Yeah. And then you don't feel like, well, I'm impotent and I'm burned out, you know, because I can't do anything and everything's so bad and everybody's suffering. No, I'll just do what I can. Yeah. And when you do what you can, you begin to see that it actually makes a difference in people's lives. Yeah, it actually makes a difference in people's lives. Yeah, it doesn't solve all their problems, but it does make a difference. We can do something. Now the question comes in, oh, well, I'm a people pleaser, so now you just gave me free reign to do everything to please other people, whether they want what I'm giving them or not, they I'm going to please them and remove their suffering. Yeah. So the, the, the thing of benefiting others doesn't mean that we give them what, what, we would want in that circumstance because they would surely, without a doubt, want the same thing we would doubt, we want. Okay. Yeah. How, how do we know that? Yeah. Somebody walks in the room. Yeah. Yeah. In Chinese, you don't say, how are you? You say, have you eaten? Yeah. It means, how are you? But have you eaten? I care about your stomach. Yeah, because if you haven't eaten, you're hungry and you're suffering. Yeah, and I can't control everything, but I'll feed you. So that's nice. Yeah, but if you, that wish is nice, as long as if they say, well, in Chinese, you just say, yes, whether you're hungry or not. Yeah. In the same way, when people say, how are you? You say, fine, whether you are or not. Okay. But, um, you know, let's say somebody, ha uh, you ask somebody, have you eaten? And they, you know, you, you don't get an answer. You don't know, like, have they eaten or haven't they eaten? Do I feed them or not? But, for sure, I've got to feed them. You know, I'm a Chinese mother. I'm a Jewish mother. Yeah. I don't know. Do Protestant mothers do this? No. Only what? And Tibetan mothers, yes. Southern mothers? Um, anyway, you know. 
No, your mother didn't do that. Okay, so we have an exception to the rule then. Uh, yeah, but, you know, if we have the attitude of, well, I'm going to feed you whether you want to be fed or not, yeah, then that's assuming that, you know, that they're suffering and I am the great savior and I'm going to feed them and they better be hungry and eat. Otherwise, I'm a failure. Yeah. If, if I'm not saving them, if I'm not pleasing them because actually they're full already, what's wrong with me? You know? So we, we get into that. Always self-referenced, isn't it? Yeah. I offered them the, the, you know, the, the, the noodles and broccoli and they, they said no. Oh. You know, I wanted to please them, and now they must remember how five years ago, you know, I burnt this or undercooked that or whatever it is. Now, always we bring it back to me in a negative way. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so compassion does not mean being a people pleaser. Yeah. How to drive yourself and others crazy. Yeah. But it is part of, of some cultures. When I went to Tibet, you know, and everywhere you go, and, and you're mostly in people's homes because there wasn't hotels around, so you're in people's homes. And, you know, and, you know, do you want tea? I mean, they come out with a thermos of Tibetan tea, right? Yeah. Very rich, lots of butter, lots of milk, you know, because there's a, there's a special thermos for the guests. Yeah. So they come out with that thermos and they start to pour it into your cup. And no offense, but I can't stand Tibetan tea. You know, it tastes bad and it's unhealthy. Too much salt, too much butter. Okay, really, very bad for your health if you're living here. If you're living in Tibet, maybe okay. But even when I was in Tibet, I, I can't stand the taste of it, okay? Um, and I would say, oh, no. And they would start pouring anyway. You know, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, you, you got to drink some. To I mean, it was worse than a Jewish mother. You know, a Jewish mother, after, you know, 10 no's, they stop. A Tibetan mother, you're going to drink some tea no matter what. Yeah. I mean, just so kind. But, and that's the culture, you know, that's the culture. So I'm not talking about it's a people, you know, a, a culture that pleases people and, you know, giving them tea is the way to do it. Um, okay. In our culture, there's other things. Yeah. But uh, to really think what does it mean to alleviate the suffering of somebody, you know, and you really have to know somebody very well and even then you could be wrong because people are not always consistent you know and so here this is where it's important to develop wisdom and to develop skillful means and to develop a sensitivity to what others experience could be so that you you know you know maybe they don't want hot tea 
but they would love a bucket of hot water to soak their feet in, you know, or, or whatever it is. Okay. Um, so benefiting others and to really think, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay. And then, I mean, why do we need to, to attain full awakening? Because only then will our mind be free of the obscurations that prevent us from knowing what, what's actually going on in another living being and what their karma is and their inclinations and their likes and their dislikes. Yeah. So if we really want to help them, we have to become enlightened. Otherwise, you know, you're just going around with your thermos of, of tea. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you're going around with your Pepsis in America. What do they do? You know, they give you a Pepsi or a Coke, neither of which I can stand. You know, I'm, I'm a little picky. But all, just because all these things aren't good for you, you know, and who wants to make your diet something that's not good for you? Oh, now I have a good opportunity. I could go into the kitchen again and talk about diet. Um, <laughs> which I'll spare you because we've ran out of time. But, um, yeah. But to really think, what does it mean? Why do I need to become a Buddha? You know, I'm a people pleaser already. I can help people or not. People, people pleaser, I mean, Buddha means people pleaser in chief. Yeah. Oh, which is another word. You're not allowed to say the word chief anymore because that's also racist. Yeah. So you can't use that word anymore. Yeah. I think they eventually disbanded this project at, 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 um, at Stanford, but it was an interesting idea. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah, you can't say blind, you can't say deaf, you shouldn't call anybody an idiot, yeah, or a moron. Good, good, because, you know, See, th this is the thing. When I first heard the teachings, okay, I'm repeating what my teacher said, and it makes sense what my teacher said. But then the students started saying, but there's glasses and there's hearing aids. So why is this a handicap? You can get a cochlear implant, you know, and so being deaf isn't going to be a handicap anymore. You can get glasses. Yeah. And so you have to really rethink it. You know, what do those conditions really mean? But we had a hard time with what do you do with terms like blind faith? You know, the person wrote, I mean, the volunteer helping with this wrote to me and said, it's still considered you're using the word blind as a pejorative term. I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, yeah, you, it's how far do you go? Yeah, right? how far you were. It's like <laughs> playing baseball in Wrigley Meadow. <laughs> you know, you can't say blind faith anymore. What? Teachings fall on deaf ears. Right? Yeah, you can't say it's falling on deaf ears. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we have our own little vocabulary that people should know that we know that you don't use those words around me. 
Yeah. Like, you don't know how to cook noodles. Oh, I'm wounded. You know, noodle, we shouldn't say noodle. Because, because you know, do you remember when you were little and somebody was thinking silly and said, you have noodles in your head? Now I heard that once or twice. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you did not. I'd heard it once or twice. So, yeah. So then everything becomes... Yeah, I'm getting the hint. <laughs> okay, so we'll stop here. Oh, that was like drinking a lot of Tibetan tea, you're saying. <laughs> she goes on and on and on. Okay. But think about some of these things. Is, is that okay to say? Ha, ha, ha.